Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is The Josh Hammer Show. Let's open our show with someone we don't normally talk about. John Fetterman, the junior senator from the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. If you were following this last year, he had a stroke around the time of the Pennsylvania Democratic senatorial primary. Many of the time called for him to drop out. Notably, his extraordinarily career-driven, ambitious wife did not call for him to drop out. Only later on did we see the results of that stroke in practice. Anyone with more than one brain cell who watched his debate with Dr. Mehmet Oz in the one and only general election exchange that happening just under a year ago or so, anyone who was watching that with a functioning brain cell could tell you that this man has no business whatsoever running for the U.S. Senate. This man has no business whatsoever running for dog catcher. He should be home recovering. And it's sad. Obviously, a stroke is sad, but he's just clearly not up to the job. He has lots of other issues as well, John Fetterman. Among those issues is that he dresses like a genuine schlub. This is a dude with a fancy Ivy League degree repertoire who dresses like he's out of a trailer park, who dresses like he's out of an orphanage. And we know what he's doing. He's trying to do the whole young, hip, woke thing. It's a very different kind of progressive, obviously, than your grandfather's Democratic Party. It's a very different kind of progressive, frankly, than Joe Biden and those of his octogenarian senile ilk. We all know what John Fetterman is trying to do. He's trying to come across as hip when he's trying to come across at all. To this day, it's worth pointing out, he still uses transcription software during his Senate hearings. He is unable to do the job without such aids. Again, this is the lingering effects of the stroke. It's actually not just his physical health. It sadly is also his mental health. He took a large leave of absence from the U.S. Senate earlier this year to seek help for a chronic bout of depression. This is not a topic to make light of, of course. There are far too many Americans who suffer from depression, and it's terrible, and we always wish them a speedy recovery, both mentally and physically. But the point here is that this man is not fit for office. And again, one of the many manifestations of that, of his not being fit for office, is the fact that he has shown not any interest in the world in actually physically dressing up for the job. He wears hoodies and shorts into the U.S. Capitol as one of 100 United States senators, the institution formerly known as the world's greatest deliberative body, the supposed pinnacle, the apex of what a legislature is supposed to be, 
back when we saw Jimmy Stewart and Mr. Smith goes to Washington and all of that jazz. John Fetterman has been disgracing the United States Senate. Not merely because of his health issues, not merely because of his far-left stances on any number of issues, his idiocy when it comes to so-called criminal justice reform, immigration, you name it. No, he has also just been flatly disgracing the institution with his sartorial standards, or more accurately, his lack thereof. And that leads us to what happened earlier this week. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer of the United States Senate, the longstanding Democratic leader from New York State, has instructed the Senate's sergeant-at-arms to no longer enforce long-standing dress code norms on the United States Senate floor. Now, it's not a formal rule. It is an informal rule. And it's changed over the years, especially as more women came to populate the U.S. Senate, for example. Older rules about only wearing dresses were replaced. Women can now wear dress slacks, the Hillary Clinton pantsuit, that sort of thing. But this is clearly, clearly a new low. And there is one reason and one reason only that Chuck Schumer is instructing the sergeant in arms to no longer enforce existing informal Senate dress codes. It is the fact that John Fetterman literally dresses like he got his clothes out of a garbage dumpster down some back alley in the middle of nowhere. Now, many Republicans have been up in arms about this. Not all. I mean, there are some Republicans who like to dress casually as well. Interestingly, Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri, who happens to be one of my absolute favorite senators, he was, he's been one of the rare Republicans who has actually not been outspoken against this lessening of standards because he happens to like wearing his jeans and boots. And that, that's his prerogative. That is his prerogative to have that opinion. I do not agree with this at all. There is something to be said about dumbing down standards. You know, George W. Bush famously called this in a slightly different context. He was talking about school choice, affirmative action, and black Americans' education opportunities and so forth. He famously referred to the, quote, soft bigotry of low expectations. Is that not exactly what is going on here? The soft bigotry of permitting someone who was clearly facing both mental and physical health issues to dress like an absolute schlub to what is supposed to be one of the most respected, venerated institutions in the entire world. That is exactly what is going on here. We are dumbing down our standards to meet the lowest common denominator, as opposed to elevating standards in an attempt to elevate the individuals who comprise this body and ultimately in the hopes of elevating discourse itself. Why are we dumbing down instead of building up. Is objectivity, furthermore, still a thing? I think back to the late, great British conservative philosopher Sir Roger Scruton, a true, true legend, who waxed poetic, who spoke time and time again about the importance of architecture, of objectively sound, beautiful architecture. Sir Roger Scruton did a lot of work following the fall of the Berlin Wall in 
former communist countries in Central and Eastern Europe, in Budapest, Hungary, actually, where I've been multiple times, they have cafes named after him, the Scruton Cafes. He was involved in helping these cities that the communists had built up these horrific, galling architectures because the communists know nothing about architecture. Scruton and people who thought like him were instrumental in building beautiful structures. There is such thing as objective beauty. Another example here to drive home the point, the so-called body positivity movement. I mean, what is up with Victoria's Secret and swimsuit lines and all of the fashion houses more generally getting in on the act of putting front and center so-called models who look like Lizzo? Does anyone want to see that? Are we trying to impart a message to America, which is already one of, if not the most absolute obese country in the world? Are we trying to impart a message that it is not only okay to be obese, but it is laudable that will get you on the cover of fashion magazines on Times Square billboards? Is that the message that we are trying to impart? Similarly, think about the John Fetterman situation. In reality, what Chuck Schumer is actually doing, the message that he is actually telegraphing, he thinks probably that he's trying to be cool and hip. Trust me, Chuck Schumer is none of those things. He certainly thinks that he's trying to get his party, the Democratic Party, John Fetterman, and all of them to be more in touch with the youths, the wokes, the progressives, and so forth there. Do you know what the real message that this sends is? The real message that it sends is that mediocrity is okay. That you don't need standards. You don't need to strive for anything. It's really quite disgraceful. I do not think that enough people in conservative media have been up in arms about this quite as much as we should be. You know, meritocracy is a loaded concept, and there have been all sorts of writings over the past couple of years, both lauding it and criticizing it on some somewhat abstruse grounds. The point is, a society, in order to function, has to have standards. You know, when I worked at a law firm for a year and a half or so, I couldn't show up in flip-flops and swim trunks. Why would I want to do that in the first place? So this is an absolute disgrace from Chuck Schumer and in instructing the sergeant arms not to enforce this informal dress code. A society that does not try to elevate, but constantly just seeks the lowest common denominator in a ceaseless attempt to try to tell everyone that you're okay, that is a society that gives out medals to children in their soccer leagues just for participating is the participation trophy of the United States Senate. That is what this is. It's wrong and we should all condemn it. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco move. 
fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Josh Hammer Show. The United Nations General Assembly has been going on this week. All sorts of interesting anecdotes coming out of that most thoroughly uninteresting body. Joe Biden finally, finally met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu for the first time since Netanyahu returned to power last December, although it did not come at the White House. It came on the sidelines of the UN, all sorts of other interesting meetings as well. But I think all eyes, as far as at least foreign leaders, Joe Biden himself aside, all eyes for the most part really have been on Volodymyr Zelensky, who spoke before the UN earlier this week. He is in Washington, D.C., now making the rounds. He's meeting with Pentagon officials. He's meeting with Senate officials. He's meeting with basically everyone trying to make sure that you, the United States taxpayer, will continue to prosecute this war effort against the world's largest nuclear arsenal, the Russian Federation, as you, the United States taxpayer, have done uninterrupted for more than a year and a half now. Interestingly, Zelensky had the temerity to actually come into the U.N. and criticize the U.N., which I actually give him credit for. I mean, the U.N. is an utter and complete cesspool. It is a horrific institution that should be gotten off of America's shores. I've been saying that for many years now. So I give him a modicum of credit for that. He did certainly sound many of the typical notes that we associate with him. He went off on this whole bizarre Greta Thunberg climate change speech. I mean, at this point, if you don't clearly see that Vladimir Zelensky is a puppet of the World Economic Forum, the Davos class and all of that, then I'm not sure what rock you've been living on. More to the point, his trip here comes at a time where he is explicitly urging Congress to allocate at least another $24 billion in security, economic, and humanitarian aid related to the war in Ukraine. Our thoughts on this show on the Russia-Ukraine war have not budged a millimeter since this thing started. Yes, Vladimir Putin is obviously to blame for invading another country. Yes, the backstory there is also a little complicated, going back to the Maidan revolution, all that. But yes, Putin obviously does bear the lion's share of the blame. However, however, this unending United States desire to fund the Ukrainians' war effort, to reclaim every single territorial inch of its so-called sovereignty, to the last inch, to the last Ukrainian, as long as it takes infinite funding. I mean, does anyone serious actually think that? Have we learned our lessons 
about prosecuting endless wars with no logical endpoint or not. For almost a year and a half now, it has been obvious to me that with the vast majority of the fighting in this conflict happening in the far eastern regions of the country, in the Donbass, in Crimea, yes, there are obviously some drones, missiles in Kiev and around there, but the vast majority of the fighting for the past almost year and a half has been in the periphery of the country. It has been so obvious that prudent American statesmanship should not be feeding the desires of the war industrial complex, the military industrial complex, Lockheed, Boeing, all the usual suspects. But rather, we'll be trying to gather all of the relevant actors into a room and try to map out an off-ramp that everyone could go back to their own constituents and ultimately get a peace. That should have been obvious a very, very long time ago. Unfortunately, the Republican Party's foreign policy establishment is just as myopic in most ways as is the Democratic Party foreign policy establishment. That is how you saw things like Mitch McConnell going back to Joe Biden's State of the Union address back in February, if memory serves, wearing the the blue and yellow striped flag as a, a token, as a token of blind, undying felty to Pope Zelensky and the Ukrainian regime. And the U.S. taxpayer, just to clarify here, guys, has now been on the hook for well over $150 billion, estimating, in aid allocated to Ukraine. Finally, though, finally... On Thursday, we finally saw a formal letter that many of us have been calling for for a very, very long time now, signed by 23 U.S. House members and a number of U.S. senators as well. This letter was addressed to Joe Biden's White House Office of Management and Budget, basically saying enough is enough and that we are not going to give in and allocate another penny unless we know what the hell is the plan here? What is the off-ramp? What is the end goal? This letter was spearheaded by J.D. Vance, the freshman senator from Ohio, and Chip Roy, the congressman from Texas, also a former guest on this very program. And uh, let me just read briefly the, the concluding paragraph of this letter. Quote, the American people deserve to know what their money has gone to. How is the counteroffensive going? Are the Ukrainians any closer to victory than they were six months ago? What is our strategy and what is the president's exit plan? What does the administration define as victory in Ukraine? And so on and so on. The fact that we do not have easy answers to these extraordinarily simple, straightforward questions says all you need to know. Now, there is obviously a Ukrainian national interest in reclaiming every single square inch of what was prior to the February 2022 invasion Ukrainian territory. Although I note that the borders in this part of Europe have been in flux, changing hands over various empires, city-states, and so forth for hundreds and hundreds of years. The borders in that part of Europe are infamously 
infamously always changing hands. But I understand, obviously, from Zelensky's perspective, why he has every interest in trying to get every penny of U.S. taxpayer dollar and trying to drag the United States and, by extension, NATO into what would amount to World War III. The elementary point that I and others have made since the beginning of this conflict is that the American national interest is not synonymous with the Ukrainian national interest in this conflict. Yes, they obviously overlap. No, obviously we don't want to see Russia start marching into Romania, Poland, NATO, and so forth there. But I think people who make that argument fundamentally misunderstand Putin. He has never thought of Ukraine as a country at all. Poland and Romania are part of NATO. There are, there are logical distinctions here. Anyway, good for Senator Vance, good for Congressman Roy, good for these Republicans for sending this letter. I'm not sure when the Democrats became the party of war, but it is worth noting that not a single Democrat that I'm aware of signed this letter. I genuinely hope that this will be a turning point for the Republican Party's, at least, stance on this conflict. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Josh Hammer Show. In the Jewish calendar, we are now in the most sensitive time of the year. The holiest, the most sensitive, the most important. It is all of those things. We just came out this past weekend out of Rosh Hashanah. That is the beginning of the Jewish New Year. This is the period commonly referred to as the High Holidays. We are in the days of awe now between Rosh Hashanah and the holiest day on the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur, which will be this Sunday evening through Monday evening. It is undisputably the most important day on the Jewish calendar. Many Jews who do not go to synagogue particularly often will definitely go on, on Yom Kippur, usually both Rosh Hashanah and, and Yom Kippur if you're not going every week for Shabbat or something, but Yom Kippur really above all else. And Yom Kippur is... A day of atonement. It is a day of repentance where we go before our father, the king of kings, Avino Malkeinu, our, our father, our king, to ask for repentance for the sins that we have committed against, against Hashem, against God himself. Now, interestingly, Judaism does not say that you can atone before God for the sins that you have committed against fellow human beings. So if you see any Jews in the lead-up to Yom Kippur asking for forgiveness, that's actually why we do so. In other words, in order to be forgiven by 
God who is merciful, who is forgiving, we directly appeal to him for that. We directly appeal to him to wipe our slate clean, to bring us closer to him in perfect repentance and so forth. But in order to be forgiven by our fellow human beings, we need to actually go ahead and ask them for their forgiveness, which will naturally entail an apology. After all, how can you ask for forgiveness if you have not apologized? And this whole lead up on the Jewish calendar, really for the past month or so, is replete with the, the liturgy of repentance, with the, with the liturgy of the, the, the Hebrew word for this is teshuva. And specifically what it is, what it is said about this period between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is that God will decide who will live and who shall perish over the next year. He will issue a decree for all of us. And it said that there are three things that can lessen the severity of the decree. Teshuva, which is repentance, tefillah, which is prayer, and chesed, which is charity and kindness. And I say all this because in daily prayers for a little while now, we have been asking for forgiveness and talking a lot about forgiveness with our friends, ultimately, obviously, before, before God himself in the lead up to this holiest of all days on our calendar. And it's worth emphasizing, while I am very far from an expert on Christian theology, Christian, Christian doctrine, Many of my evangelical Protestant friends do tell me that Christianity is not, is not particularly dissimilar from Judaism in this respect. Christianity, of course, is huge on the notion of repentance, of repenting for one's sins. Obviously, when it comes to final questions, when it comes to the nature of the deity, when it comes to theology, Christians and Jews would differ as to what that repentance entails— Christians would say, you repent and ultimately come to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Obviously, we Jews have a difference of opinion on that particular matter. But the point is that repentance is a big, big thing among Jews and Christians. And for us Jews, this time of the year really is the time where we are thinking and ideally acting most along those lines, because our religion is not one of thoughts, it is one of actions. So why do I say all of that? Well, it, it obviously happens to be in my mind. It's been in our daily prayers for a while now. We have prayers in the liturgy known as Slichot, prayers of repentance, the famous prayer of Yudom Malkeinu, our father of kings. So it's been literally in our prayers. But I say all this because there's been a very troubling rise in some elements of the right in recent years. And I've noticed it more and more just over the past few months or so, which is the rise of this notion that it is somehow cowardly to apologize, that you should never apologize, never say you did anything wrong. Never dare to ask for forgiveness. Don't deign or stoop to that level. We see this time and time again. 
there was an anti-Semitism scandal, actually, earlier this year. It was in June when Breitbart had a, a, a disgusting hit piece, a hit piece in which I, among many others, was mentioned. A hit piece about a conservative writer and actually former guest on this show named Pedro Gonzalez. Now, I've known Pedro for a few years now. Can't say I know him well, but I do know him. Turns out that Pedro used to say some extraordinarily bigoted, anti-Semitic things in his private conversations. He says that that is not who he is today. For what it's worth, he has never been anything but good to me. Obviously, knowing that I am Jewish, many other Jews have similar stories. But after this long-form hit piece came out, and it was a disgusting hit piece, Matthew Boyle, the person who wrote it, is a slovenly figure who was obviously doing the Trump campaign's bidding because Pedro's a DeSantis supporter. The politics are a little complicated. But the hit piece, as disgusting as it was, did call for an apology. And unfortunately, I was disappointed by Pedro's response because it did not entail an apology. And I remember what he told me before he published his Substack post. He told me that some, I'm not going to name names, but some in kind of the upper echelons of conservative-leaning media had encouraged him to not apologize. Never apologize. You look weak. There are so many other examples of this. I do not mean to pick on Pedro. How about Christy Nome, the governor of South Dakota? The fact that Christy Nome was having an affair with Corey Lewandowski, a loathsome individual from 2016 Trump world, that was pretty well known for a long time. The number of people who I can personally recount who actually saw them holding hands, kissing and whatnot at conservative confabs over the past few years, they were not doing a particularly good job of hiding it. Noam actually addressed this on Twitter two years ago in 2021. She denied she was having an affair. Well, then it turns out the Daily Mail just last week, reported on this affair, and then Noam finally did not deny it. If she's apologized for it, though, I've missed it. How about Lauren Boebert? What happened to her was ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. I mean, she's seeing Beetlejuice in a theater, vaping, groping, and getting groped, pulling the do you know who I am card on like a pregnant mother behind her who just wanted to enjoy the production and then getting kicked out and then denying it all happened up until the theater released footage just to call her for her BS. And only then did she apologize, quasi-apologize. I mean, whatever you want to call it. I'm not sure it was exactly heartfelt. And then I saw Matt Gates come up on Twitter and say, oh, I stand with Lauren Boebert and Christy Nome against these attacks on them. Look, I, I am not going to tell you that 
we only elect figures here who are as pristine as the dotted snow in the Alaskan tundra. That's not true, obviously. Politics is an icky business. As the good book says, put not thy trust in princes and all of that. This is a dirty business, no doubt about that. And it is clearly true that not all of our elected leaders are going to be the most righteous and upstanding of individuals. And I have personally pulled the ballot lever for any number of individuals who are probably, if not definitely, morally compromised. The point is, at what point did it become acceptable to just trudge on when you clearly mess up and to never apologize and ask forgiveness before others, before your peers, before your voters, if you are if you are an elected official. I don't know where this came from. It's certainly not from the Judeo-Christian moral or ethical or scriptural tradition. It's almost a neo-paganism or a Gnosticism of some sort. To an extent, it fits a little bit into the neo-pagan elements of the very online right, BAP, Bronze Age, Bronze Age pervert, and all of that. That's a topic for another day. That is where I suspect this mentality is coming from, though. But for now, again, as we Jews are in the holiest day of our calendar, you know, they say that we're supposed to be a light unto the nations. And it is said during these days of awe, these 10 days of repentance, that there are three things you can do to lessen the severity of the decree. There is teshuva, repentance, tefillah, which is prayer, and tzedakah, which is charity. These are important concepts. Surely we can ask our leaders at a bare minimum to do better and to take that advice when they themselves mess up. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Josh Hammer Show. It's ah! Hammer Time. Go! Nigerian Princess brings international perspective on DEI to Atlanta. Moradeun Ogunlana, 
sorry if I mispronounced your name there, said there was an eight-point business case for diversity, equity, and inclusion. You can change how candidates are recruited and vetted. You can educate leaders. You can create an inclusive workplace by ensuring that policies, practices, uh, I'm obviously not going to read all of this, but it is worth pointing out that the Nigerian princess then added, she said, quote, diversity is not only about race, ethnicity, gender, or religion or culture. It is also about perspective, experience, knowledge, skills, and innovation. I mean, how many ways can you say nothing without literally just keeping your mouth shut and actually saying nothing? What What is she actually saying here, right? And the way that I read this, diversity is not only about race, ethnicity, gender, or religion. You know, there's been a pushback against DEI. There's been a real concerted pushback against DEI, thank goodness. Our recent guest on this show, Chris Rufo, talked about this with us. He wrote a whole book partially about this topic, and they're dropping like flies. The number that I think I saw was roughly 40% of DEI officers whose jobs have been created out of thin air in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd almost three and a half years ago now, 40% of those DEI jobs have evaporated. The conservative pushback against DEI has really started to bear fruits. So when this Nigerian princess is making the rounds in Atlanta talking to C-suite executives who want to just basically worship at the woke temple and whatnot there, she's forced to change her language and saying, no, it's not, it's not literally about race and ethnicity. It's not literally about those things that the United States Supreme Court in the affirmative action case just said you cannot actually discriminate on because it's a 14th Amendment violation. No. It's actually about knowledge, skills, innovation, all this loosey-goosey stuff. The, the, the broader point here, and we, we saw this in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the broader point here is who the hell is paying for nothing burger words don't mean anything, talks like this. Who is attending? And are you actually going because you care about what this princess is saying? Or are you saying because you want to just be seen by the human resources people and you want to be in good social standing in what is rapidly evolving into a Chinese Communist Party-style social credit system? I mean, I, I think the question, frankly, speaks for itself. Howard Stern tells off critics who say he's woke now. So this is Howard Stern. He said, quote, I'm anti-Trump, pro-vaccine, and support transgender people. I am woke, mother effer. Uh, Dude, first of all, uh, Howard Stern, I mean, you did not rise to fame by being a wokester. Now, you know, Howard Stern is not exactly, <laughs> I mean, he's not like a Ralph Reed moral majority kind of guy. I mean, no, no one would confuse him with Jerry Falwell or anything like that. I'm, I'm, I'm being facetious, obviously. But this is not someone who is considerably down with the excesses of woke culture, very similar to what we discussed on our last show with, with Russell Brand, someone who, yeah, I mean, he maybe he's a bit promiscuous or lascivious, but he is willing to call out a far-left BS spade for a far-left BS spade. So, why is Howard Stern seemingly selling out this much later in life? I mean, I beats me. I mean, maybe he's trying to win a new audience. Maybe he's getting a fat paycheck from someone there. But, dude, Howard, if, you're, if you happen to be getting a paycheck to be saying stuff like this, then I really do hope that you are at least being compensated well. 
Release federal government's first ever chief diversity officers executive council marks one year. So this week, the U.S. chief diversity officers executive council marked one year since its inaugural interagency meeting. So remember what I just said about how we actually are making progress throughout corporate America and to a lesser extent, perhaps the education bureaucracy in gutting DEI infrastructure. Well, unfortunately, the federal government has had no such luck. So here is Kiryan Ahuja, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. This is the OPM director under Biden, quote, chief diversity officers are key voices across the federal government. They advance equity, support employees, ensure our workforce reflects the blah, 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 blah. I mean, you, you know how it goes from now. Look, Joe Biden was not always this kind of guy. I mean, was he a man of the left? Yes, but he's also the man who called for Roe versus Wade to be overturned over and over and over again via constitutional amendment, if necessary, throughout the 1980s. This is someone who supported the tough-on-crime legislation during the Clinton era when he was a U.S. senator in the 1990s. The fact that he has gone this direction with his administration says very little about the actual substantive or ideological beliefs of a man who barely knows what is going on in any given day when he wakes up in the morning. Rather, it says everything about the state of the Democratic Party and the progressive movement itself. God willing, we will start to see the perpetuation of that DEI pushback which we have, again, seen in the private sector and the education bureaucracy, God willing, we will start to see some more of that as well happening in the Biden administration. But for now, I'm kind of just waiting on more lawsuits to drop. I mean, ultimately, the best way to fight back against this crap, and this crap, of course, no matter what the Nigerian princess is saying in lofty words, this crap still does amount to discrimination on the basis of race, ethnicity, and so forth. The best way to keep on fighting back against this crap is death by a thousand litigation cuts. We need more right-wing activist lawyers, more folks like Ed Bloom, the guy who brought the affirmative action lawsuits against Harvard and University of North Carolina, stuff like that. And as a case may be, just this week, actually, literally earlier this week, we saw the announcement of a new affirmative action lawsuit against the United States Military Academy in West Point, on the same grounds. Uh, basically, that's a federal institution, so it's a, it's, a, it's a slightly different constitutional argument than Harvard or UNC Chapel Hill. But that's the right idea. Just keep the lawsuits coming, push back against all the diversity nonsense. Republicans push ahead with attempts to impeach governor over Albuquerque gun ban. So in case you missed this one, the Democratic governor of New Mexico, Michelle Lujan Grisham, not a very frequently discussed figure, she decided to put into place a straight-up ban on either open or concealed carrying of weapons in Albuquerque, the state's largest city specifically, after a spate of recent shootings. That decision has been enjoined in court. There is going to be further litigation on this. Now, this is in direct contravention, direct contravention of the U.S. Supreme Court's major Second Amendment case, uh, last term, the term ending 2022, a case called Bruin out of New York State, which for the first time announced that, yes, there is a Second Amendment individual right, not just to keep arms, but to bear it. That, after all, is what the Second Amendment text says. Now, yes, there obviously can be prudential time, place and manner restrictions. Maybe you can regulate guns on school grounds a little bit more than guns in parks, things like that. 
But that is not what the governor did here. And the point is, the governor can't possibly be this stupid. Okay, she knew that this was illegal. She's clearly just trying to make headlines for herself. Maybe she is delusional enough to think that she might get tapped as a as a future cabinet or vice presidential nominee if Kamala Harris decides to get off the ticket or if Democrats force her out. But she has to know better than this. This thing is ultimately going to get thrown out in court. Republicans in the state of Mexico are, of course, correct to push back on it. Finally, Joe Biden to announce executive level gun control office. So President Biden is announcing the Office of Gun Violence Prevention. This office will be coordinated with, yep, you guessed it, Mike Bloomberg, the king of every town and various other pro-gun grabbing, gun confiscation organizations. So, you know, to Biden's slight credit, this is an issue that he has not wavered on over the years. I mean, there are any number of issues that he has flipped and flopped and flipped and flopped, abortion being a notable example. I, uh, Joe Biden, his whole life has been an anti-gun guy. So this is somewhat of kind of just a, a realizing of his of his long-held beliefs here. I mean, what do they possibly think is going to happen? Really, what do they think is going to happen here? If you guessed nothing, if you guessed absolutely nothing, just a bunch of virtue signalers are going to get jobs, then you'd guess correctly. 